<clears throat> this is Real 5, Session 7, Arthur Siegel Interview, November 4th, 1977, Chicago, Illinois, James McQuaid, Arthur Siegel, Elaine King participating in the session. 4th of Fourth November. My, how the time do pass. The date is November 4th, 1977. The 7th day, I think it is, of the interview with Jim McQuaid of the International Museum of Photography at George Eastman House. <sighs> and we're getting tired, fatigued away. Yes. Well... You were saying... Uh, I was going to remind you about two things, first of all. Um, first of all, on your trip to California, something to do with Mybridge. Oh, yes. Uh, while I was in the, and around Palo Alto, uh, I found, I, I had learned before I even went there, they had some Mybridge material. And I was kind of interested in Mybridge. So I went there, and they didn't even know where it was, except in the generally it was in some room. And I went down into that room, and there in the corner, heaped on the floor, was a bunch of Mybridge stuff, all literally spilled out, and uncatalogued on everything. So I began working with the material and sorted it out, and spent a couple days there, and gradually discovered uh, you know, some of the early Mybridge photographs that he did for, uh, I guess, Carlton Watkins. The, the Yosemite stuff and so The Yosemite, yeah. Yosemite. And uh, then I discovered some, you know, pictures that later became obvious of, of uh, San Francisco panoramic views. And then identified, went on to identify where it was taken exactly. And identified some of the buildings, you know. Did you go up to San Francisco to do that? Or yeah, did you? yeah. And uh, the other thing, I ran across this album, which I'd never heard of, uh, or certainly never seen anything of the... See, I became interested in the whole chronology. What, first of all, I was interested in two things. One, about Mybridge in general. Two, about the whole relationship of him to Stanford, because it was quite, uh, and still is for that matter, and I think the historians are all wrong crediting Mybridge you know, with the stop-motion uh, mechanisms. It was really an engineer that worked for the railroad for uh, Stanford. And I was trying to track down the apocryphal story, you know, with Bet, which never has been resolved. Mm -hmm. And I went back, you know, and got the original material on the murder trial and so on. But then, at that point, nobody knew what happened to Mybridge after the trial. He disappears for a while. He disappears, right. And that was the central thing I was trying to find out. Well, I found these albums that he did in Mexico and Guatemala, Guatemala. And as far as I know, that was the first time anybody really looked at them in a long time. And they were just lying around. And I found ultimately three of three volumes. Uh, and there was a fourth one, which I was never able to track down. So all South American? Yeah. Stuff? All uh, Central American, not South American. Yeah. And that was very exciting because I saw all the coffee, bean planting, and harvesting, and women bathing, and 
in the atmosphere today, you could print that in two minutes. And, but there, they didn't know what the hell they had. They hadn't the slightest idea. So I made them quite aware of what they had. Was there a particular person that let you in? To yeah. See it? Who was uh, in uh, charge of it, theoretically? Nobody was in charge of it. Well, who had the keys to the room? <laughs> it was just in a, in a room. I can't remember. Somebody was generally in charge of the material around there. I don't remember the name. And uh, I took lots of notes and so on, and then, you know, we finally left there. And uh, when I got back, I was really, had become very, totally fascinated. I could have, you know, spent the next year doing it. And I then decided, well, this is ridiculous. And what the hell am I doing, wasting all my time? On my bridge. You know, on my bridge. That I wasn't a historian, you know, of that kind of research historian, original material. Right. I mean, I had started out just because I wanted to know something about my bridge for, the, for myself, really. So I told Beaumont about all this stuff, and then Beaumont later did incorporate the material about South America. And then Mybridge became a great cultural photographic hero, and there are, I think, at least four books on him, uh, all of which are slightly contradictory, and a lot of them have the material that I first unearthed. Uh, making no claims to anything, I mean, I just... I did put it in a little order, I must say. Mm-hmm. And you made them aware? Yeah. To the extent that maybe they, they might have thrown it out in the next 10 years, I but they did I don't think they would have thrown anything out. That was the point. It was just shoved in there. You know, it's like George Eastman House. They have a lot of stuff there. They're not going to throw it out. But there's a lot of stuff just lying around there that nobody's going to get to, maybe mm-hmm. forever. The basement is filled that night. Well, I've been in the basement. That's what I'm talking about. And that is not only the case of George Eastman House, but... If you go to certain other museums. other museums, everybody is always understaffed. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the universal, generally the universal condition. Hi, yes. And... Is uh, came in today? He's learning. I think he could, might get into a good college yet. Um, anyway, that was the Mybridge thing. Okay, while, we're, while we have you in California, um, we, we mentioned that you visited Weston yeah. on the same trip. Yeah, well, I stayed there four or five days. And, and my question really is just, um, what? Sit down, Dido. Did she smell today? No. As a, we're making a tape. Would you get her out? I'm tired of you. Okay. Um, my question is really is this: is what? What was the significance of that visit in your mind? I mean, did that really? Was that a real experience for you, or was it? Was it, uh, did it debunk the myth, or you'd never oh, met? No, no, no. It was a delight. Edward and I got along very well, even though, you know, he was already, was ill. But he was not very ill at that point. No. Uh-uh. And he, I saw every picture that he had, which was a lot. In those five days? Pardon me? And during those five days, you had gone through... His pictures. Yeah, every day we went through his pictures. I mean, he would go do something else, maybe, and I would, uh, I would look through. Uh, Barbara and I would look through, you know, the pictures. Or uh, mm-hmm. I looked at his books, which were, you know, kind of a mixture of, were a lot of mystical, interest books. 
which surprised me, but then when I thought about it, not so, being in California, being a vegetarian, he was a vegetarian. I mean, we ate a lot of nuts and raisins and that kind of thing. But what was funny, I mean, it was a split. You know, I told you about the pictures I took of the whole series of Weston feeding the spleen to the cats, the place with just one bloody mess. Did Sorry, I didn't, you know, shoot some color. <laughs> did, did you? Uh, so, and we talked, and Edward would, was still getting up, you know, very early in the morning. And Where did you stay? Uh, right now at Wildcat Hill. We had some sleeping bags, and we stayed about 20 yards away from the house. Just camped out on the... Yeah, and we ate all our meals inside. And, uh, you now, know, we Karis bought had, some of the meals. And Karis was gone at that point, was she not? Yes. She had, she had left. And Brett had moved them down the, down the coast piece. Yeah. And in fact, I think it was about then that he was building his house. That Brett was? Yeah. Down at Garapata? Yeah. And uh, we would go with Edward, to, you know, down to the beach and want to walk around, go into town. Talked a great deal. Uh, I was very, you know, impressed by his desk, for instance. I mean, that seemed to be a great part of his life, was writing. As it later turned out, it was, but he seemed to be writing quite a bit to me. So I made a rather beautiful picture, I think, of Edward's desk that's up there someplace. And uh, then I photographed, and just in Edward's honor, when I got back, I developed those negatives in pyro. I had used pyro, we haven't talked about this, but I started out using ABC pyro exactly as Edward. To retain, stick, stuck with the pie. When you very first started. Yeah, way, way back. You said you went to the library and you got, I think you mentioned, you got the That's old right. books. Yeah, but I never mentioned the ABC Pyro, which was a standard yeah. professional thing. And I was, you know, astounded by the primitiveness of Edward's working facilities. There was, you know, a wooden bench and the water was very cold and uh, it was primitive. You know, there was a printing frame. And a light bulb. And the light bulb. And that was kind of it. So that was kind of exciting. You know, it had nothing to do with the equipment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it had to do with your head. And Edward was very nice. Uh, I understand on many occasions he's quite testy. But uh, after, you know, 10 minutes of talking, we were friendly. And he recognized in his someone who knew about him, you know, appreciated him. Uh, and uh, then the last day, <coughs> uh, I'd looked at all the pictures, and I, uh, he offered to sell me any of the pictures I wanted from the Museum of Modern Art, having told me the story. The show had just come back? Yeah, the show had come back, or recently back, mm -hmm. and uh, he had offered the whole show to them for $2,000. Those 200 prints? Yeah. And they had turned it down. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who curated that show. Was it Nancy? Might have been. Would have, probably would have been. Probably I think it was Nancy. It went up in 46. It would have had been planned a year before when the war yeah. was still on. So, right. so uh, I then, you know, I didn't have much money. Uh, so I made some decisions about the photographs that I picked that I, I just would show some variety of Edwards for my students. I mean, that's why I bought the Western pictures, was to have some samples of the classic tradition, really. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't even my choices. You know, I didn't pick out the pictures 
that I thought were the great pictures. I just picked out some pictures that I liked that were typical, not archetypal, mm -hmm. which is a difference. You know, I'm not testing my taste there. I'm trying to show students what the range was. Because I had had a lot of the Western books and was showing the Western books. So I just wanted to show what a real print looks mm -hmm. like. Uh, even though my slides, you know, and I use books, I've never been confused about what a real print is. But in my mind, you see, that is very subordinate. That's where Beaumont and Paul Strand and I differed very much. That's where we came into conflict on Ouija. And I was right and they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And Nancy, because I remember distinctly, you know, the long discussion we had, I said, you know, insisted that Ouija was a great photographer. And I remember Paul Strand and Beaumont sticking by the statement, but he can't print. And I said, didn't make a goddamn bit of difference whether he printed on a bath mat. The really fundamental thing, the thing that made a photographer was not making prints, but what he saw. And in the case of Ouija, that certainly has come true. Now, you must understand, again, that Ouija, even though it was widely shown, he practically disappeared into oblivion when he went until to very recently. When he died. Yeah, but in, not in my history. See, Ouija's always been very much in the foreground of what happened in the 40s, you know. Mm -hmm. But with uh, Strand, Strand always uh, insisted, you see, on the quality of the print. And I'm not against that. Understand what I'm saying? I'm not against that. You're just saying it's not the indispensable Well, thing. in the case of Ouija, I mean, having been a newspaper man myself, that wasn't the point. I mean, there are appropriate things. For Paul Strand, who was dedicated to the proposition of a documentary art, an art-oriented documentary, then it was fitting that as a carrier of the great classical tradition of Stieglitz that he should make fine prints. But for Ouija, the fact that he banged out the print, and if it lasted until it got to the, to the printer, that's all that was really necessary. Mm -hmm. And the same tradition, you see, holds true with Gary Winogrand. Gary Winogrand couldn't give a goddamn less about how good the print is. In fact, I just read in the Village Voice, somebody printed his show. Yes, and it's magnificent. Well, I know, but that has nothing to do with Gary Winogrand. Yeah, he knows well, how to pick a printer. <laughs> well, I think in light of that, there's a lot to be said beyond just the show, beyond the prints. I mean, that show is Gary Winogrand, but that show is not Gary Winogrand. Gary Winogrand made it work, but beyond actual taking pictures, a lot of the impact of that show will come from Papa George's editing. Because I mean, Winogrand. Well, but that's true of every photographer. You can go through uh, Weston's pictures, and he is one of the crummiest photographers that existed in the 20th century. He is has a very dull eye if you want to edit him that way. If you want to edit him another way. He comes out as being the equivalent of Picasso. No, but what I'm saying is, well, it's interesting though. Well, no, that's a, you and just said it about his editing, and I'm saying that essentially if a photographer makes 10 good photographs in a year, he's pretty good. And that's where these young, you know, young photographers who think they should be famous before they even get out of graduate school, that's a pile of crap. There's okay. no other area that, that exists. Let me, let me come back to Carmel for a second. Yeah. I, you were about to say how much you finally paid for him, I think, which would be interesting. Yeah, right. I paid $25, and I didn't have the money. so Each? Yeah. And I got 
I can't remember. I can't even Three remember. Or four, like no, that. I got I think four or five. Uh, they've been sitting around there, and I show them the students, and finally we. Well, no, those are the that's the original Museum of Modern Art framing. Oh, is it? Little yeah. labels on the back of it. I have a friend who bought one, still in that frame. Also, quite recently, a couple of years ago, bought it from Wynne Bullock, who had gotten it from Edward, and it was still in a frame. And it was. Uh, well, it wasn't a frame. It was a passport too. They're passport too. What is it? It's taped uh, to, yeah, to plex or something. Uh -huh. Ends up back, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, whatever the, the system is, so that's what it was in. Yeah. Well, it's beginning to disintegrate, but uh, I bought a couple uh, that were not uh, in the show. In the sh well, I don't remember if they were in the show, but they were not the uh, not framed, not passepartout. Yeah, well, Edward would have sold me was delighted to sell any number of them. Nobody was buying his pictures. That's what's so screwy. Everybody has it so backwards. Mm -hmm. And they keep thinking that, you know, that people used to buy photographs. Well, the Museum of Modern Art didn't buy photographs. Except, in, you know, when Steichen came in and exploited everybody, kind of forcing them to sell the museum photographs at a very cheap rate when they were going to have a show, like, you know, $10 for a print or something. But that, that all keeps getting hidden. You know, Grace Mayer doesn't talk about that. Was this the first time you had actually bought prints as prints then, yourself? Pretty much so, yeah. I've never been a collector. I didn't have the money to be a collector. One, two, I didn't want to... I got prints from Harry Callahan, were very early friends, but I never bought those prints. Harry gave them to me, or Todd. Right, yeah, that's different. Todd gave me that whole uh, series of pictures of the street, you know, where he went and measured intervals down the street in New York City, and then put them together, and it was a street, you know, all the buildings matching up, which I noticed is in that panorama show. Well, Todd gave that to me because he was very. Todd, like me, acknowledged the role I played. See, that's the difference between Harry and Todd. Todd, in his books, has, you know, mentioned me as being somebody important to him. Mm -hmm. uh, Harry, I was thinking about the whole thing. Harry has no commitment to anything excepting to Harry Callahan. I mean, as far as, you know, being... You know, the reason this came up was I was looking at those Maholi some of Maholi materials before I went to sleep. Maholi was very much committed, you know, to Hungarian uh, politics and so on during the war years. Uh, I can't remember Harry ever belonging to a group committing himself either to charity or politics or anything. Nothing. Hmm. I wonder if he had interesting. He ever belonged to any group outside the camera club. Right, camera club. But that was, again, in his interest. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in their interest. I have another question that sort of comes off of this visiting one. And maybe that's the role of an artist. Isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Maybe. See, it can be a diversion. Oh, it's right. just like... Well, there's a million interesting things yeah. to do with your energy. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that aren't the thing you should be doing. And a lot of artists, you see, I'm very much aware, there are a lot of artists around Chicago, painters, <clears throat> who keep talking about social rights and civil rights and the poor and, you know, the oppressed. And they're terrible artists. But they get a lot of strength in some communities by being for 
and this is a big battle that goes on. Like, uh, you know, there are a lot of black artists now. Well, there are just as few good black artists as there are a few good white artists, or the same problem comes out with women's art. Mm -hmm. In the main, there most of them are lousy. There are some good women artists, but it gets all confused. If you're for women's rights, then they try to use that as a weapon, you know, a blackmail actually, to be accepted as an artist. And that doesn't, none of those groups hold water with me. So, in a real sense, I'm more in favor of Harry's position, even though that isn't what I particularly did. I mean, I think it's a rather narrow way of living. But it, it, it certainly can be justified in my mind. Mm -hmm. I've talked about Harry. He certainly produces the work. I mean, that's damn right, Harry's one of the great artists of, in photography, yeah. and a lot of these, you know, committed, so-called. That's what makes the joke. You see about uh, what's her name, Tucker and and Tucker. You know, claims about the. Uh, uh, photo league people, mm -hmm. you know, she's trying to make them out as very influential in photography. I'll put Harry up against anybody she cares to name mm -hmm. as to who had, Harry had more influence on photography than in the whole photo league in one sense. I mean, I'm giving it a shift. Right. Mm -hmm. in, in an aesthetic sense. Yeah. She's talking probably more from, almost from a social... Well, right, but standpoint. even the Aaron, you see, is a classic. You don't even have to go to Harry. Aaron was with the Harlem Document you know, group, and he was in the photo league. And I remember the fights. Aaron got into big fights, you see, with people who were socially minded. They wanted to dictate what the results were before they were even made. That's what we call propaganda. Mm. And gradually, Aaron became more and more aestheticized, if you want to call it that, and less politicized, even though Aaron remained politically oriented for years. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he very definitely was a left-oriented, you know, person. All of his friends were. But Aaron, you know, the, began to shift with the Martha Vineyard, you know, Bucks County things until finally, you know, there was really no more room. And in Russia, we saw what happened after, you know, Tatlin and the Earth. There was a real revolution in art in the early days of the revolution. Then it gradually fell under the... Mm -hmm. the uh, power of the commissars and became super realism and you can't tell the difference really between Nazi art and communist art if you look at it, mm. you know, accepting by its kind of subject matter. Well, that's all being revived again, you see. I mean, black art, women's art, a great deal of it has to do with subject matter, mm. which is very different too from a new kind of great photographer like Gary Winogrand, who never talks about form, but is very form-oriented. Gary never talks about the fact that he's a painter. He's very form-oriented. He's very knowing, too, of the unconscious. He was married to a woman analyst. Mm. That's where the history gets all cockeyed. Mm -hmm. People never talk about the things that are not obvious, mm -hmm. because they don't, they're afraid they might make a mistake, one. And two, it's not popular to talk about those things because it arouses anxiety in the people that you're talking to. Hmm. Particularly students, too. Okay, I want to I want to come back if I can. Yeah. To uh, a question I had before um, that occurred to me in relation to the visit to Weston, but isn't actually about that so much. I uh, in terms of. 
Uh, well, I, I, what I'm really wondering is what, what was uh, Barbara's feeling about this? Your, your new wife's feeling about all the photography and like buying the Western prints, and how did she relate to, the, to that? To your, I mean, did she care? Was she involved herself in anything related? Or, you know? Barbara was a very beautiful woman. She was a very talented woman. Uh, she was a textile weaver. That's what she was studying and was very gifted in doing uh, original textile fabric designs. And she was studied with Marley Ehrman and she was sort of oriented. Uh, she had gone to Stanford and, uh, but she was not, uh, she was a very quiet person, very private kind of person and not interested in painting or sculpture or that kind of thing. It was in weaving. And uh, the interest in art... Ezra, would you please stop that? Uh, she was mildly interested in photography, but that was hardly a passion of hers. Hmm. I think as a matter of fact that uh, it was almost an intrusion. Uh, in, into something she didn't particularly uh, want to deal with. She never was against it, as it were, but it, it was hardly her passion. Um, she enjoyed very much being at the Weston, and uh, they got along very well. Uh, the whole trip was kind of traumatic for me, meeting her her mother had flown in for the wedding and then I met her sister and you know her husband who I liked very much um, and we went to visit some of my old friends a guy named Alex Teller who uh, had a what do they call it houseboats you know Marina Marin, Sausalito. Sausalito and they had a lot of fun mm -hmm. and uh but I, I, you know, it sort of had some kind of something happened to me on the trip in there, and remained kind of ill all the time. Um, Did you lecture at any schools? No, uh, no. That was one of the few vacations I've had in my life. When I didn't do anything excepting make some photographs. No, I visited old friends there. Saw my friend Amo Becksky, who. Stills out there, architect, and uh, I we went and visited my old friend Charlie Eames, Charlie and Ray Eames, and uh, I'd forgotten about that. And uh, there was a oh, Victor Gruen, the city planner. Uh, I knew a lot of people. I've known so many, a lot of people in my lifetime. And these were people I helped, like Victor Gruen came over as a refugee. I helped get him some stuff, and uh, he became, you know, a millionaire. And Edgardo Contini would work with Victor, but we had gotten Emil and I had gotten his first job with uh, yeah, with Yeah, you, uh, you mentioned that. Yeah, and he's very bright, Italian architect. And visit him there, he had this fantastic, you know, state. <laughs> to ramp up the, uh, in a sense, discussion of this first period at the ID, um, you wanted to say something about the motion picture courses that you taught. And I guess you taught, what, just that course in the 49-50 school year when you had quit teaching full-time. 
No, I didn't quit. You, don't, you keep getting mixed up. I was there full-time through the 49 thing. 48, 49 school year? Yeah. And uh, then I... Uh, oh, Anyway, the Moholy Mahol, the, the book, The New Vision, was reprinted as a document of American art by uh, the series of uh, uh, documents of, of modern art by Motherwell. And in that, uh, and you can see here, for instance, here's a little reproduction of the light prop of Moholy's. Moholy always had this interest in light, you know, in the film Black, White, and Gray, certainly. Mm -hmm. It expresses that, but uh, this is on the holy, the latter part. And then you see this little picture here called Architecture by Arthur Siegel, Art Siegel. Maholi would frequently call me Art instead mm -hmm. of Arthur. He's right under the Sheeler, number 44. Yeah, well that picture I made in the corridors of the Chanute Field, uh, uh, one of the training uh, buildings. Uh-huh. And we were talking last time about, you know, that I did, was making pictures in 44 and 45 of my own while doing all the Army Air Corps trap. Mm-hmm. And this is under uh, architecture, actually, it's talking about... Well, I don't think... I don't know spatial interpenetration, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's talking about the kind of buildings of the future that would be transparent and interpenetrating violence, which is something he liked. And, uh, you know, Molly was always given to hyperbolic interpretations of both any ideas he had and of what was happening. And that was his way of getting attention, you see, mm -hmm. to the ideas. It was like a showman. But anyway, I wanted to show you that. that the, that's one of the pictures. I haven't seen it. It's no. It's nice. It's kind of small there. Hard to tell. Well, it's yeah. small there, and I think that there may exist a copy around here of Floating that. around somewhere. Yeah. Anything and they possible. were 11 by 14. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were not, I wasn't fooling. I was just doing these things. There are probably many surprises in those boxes upstairs. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, the motion picture course. You wanted to say something? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say that along the line, uh, somewhere I'd hired, uh, Bob Edmonds taught a course in sort of motion picture history. And then I got uh, Gene Sells, who was married to Pete Sells, who was later to go to the museum, who was teaching at the Institute. Is that S-E-L-Z? Z, yeah, right. He is the authority on German Expressionism. He went to the Museum of Modern Art, and then he has been at Berkeley for years. Is Bob Edmonds the one that was at Columbia College? Yeah. Um, what was it going to say? Uh, you got Jane Sells. Oh, oh yeah. Peter Sells' wife, and uh, to teach a course in uh, motion picture. And then somewhere along there, I think first I did it, then we changed, and then I did it again. But I did things, and I had 400 students coming. You must remember, this was not the, the kind of interest, again, in motion picture particularly then as it is now. But I, did, I remember I did one course called the um, Wit and Humor in the Motion Picture. 
wit and humor? Yeah, which had to do with a whole Freudian analysis of the, the real content of motion picture. Was this primarily showing films? Yeah. Like every, an artist, like a history of... Type. Yeah, but it was open to the public and people flocked in. But there, the, that one primarily concerned itself with the early history of the motion picture, which I then contended and still do, was very childlike, a lot of it. You know, doing childlike things like slapstick and everybody getting wet with hoses, and I interpreted it from, you know, the standpoint of the unconscious. Mm. The, uh, and why the great masses of people flocked to it, what it was beyond the visual thing that they thought they were seeing, what was the really real content of the motion picture that appealed to them without them knowing it. What other kinds of films, or what, what films? What would be a... Oh, there are films by Chaplin, Buster Keaton, and... Uh, Did you show Melies or any of those? Oh, films? absolutely. Started out with that. Melies has been, always been a favorite of mine. Yeah. See, and the, working out the difference between uh, a lot of traditions in motion pictures that were beginning and how they developed, whether it was, oh, your total early confusion about the motion picture really you know, being film plays, Vashel Lindsay's, you know, I think wrote something about 1916 about, you know, he really thought the motion picture had to do with, with uh, photographing these uh, plays. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, other people thought it had to do with a novel, you know, and other people thought it had to do, by that time, you know, I, from, I showed a lot of the Russian things and in other courses, and the German things, Variety, and then Padovkin, and Eisenstein, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, for somebody who never took a course, you know, but who had been going to New York and worrying about motion pictures for years, it was a very sophisticated thing. And it was, thing. And it was just the this human wit, was that the course you taught? That was one of the courses. The year after you had... Uh... Somewhere around there, Harry uh, wanted me. Yeah. And then uh, there was an interim period and then Aaron came for about a year after I uh, left teaching the okay. still now, photography. Um, but then they stood, that by that time, you see, that 100 print show that I made was circulating all over. And the student work and... Yeah. And that was really the best summation of contemporary photography. Where was that circulating to? All over the United States. Museum, universities? Universities, uh, yeah, art institutes. I don't know. I left. When I came back, there was still, the pictures were still hanging, even though they had moved to a new building and everything, they used those pictures. Because again, that's what I'm trying to tell you, Harry was concerned about Harry. He put all of his energies and so did Aaron, uh, in a way, but more so Harry in the interim. Uh, they never made a new show. Not that they're, it, you know, they could have added a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Okay, in terms of your leaving the idea, you talked about um, sort of a gradual falling out with Chermayoff over the year and so on. And I was, I was wondering in the back of my mind if, uh, if money wasn't also a factor in the sense that Not you weren't making much and you could, could make more freelancing. No, none. Zero. In fact, that was a disaster for me leaving. Well, that was, that was the next question is... Oh, no, I... Uh, uh, no, it was... Uh, I felt very betrayed by Harry's lack of support, Nathan's lack of support. There was some talk of getting Paul Strand, I found out. And uh, I was not functioning too well. 
and I'd come out of the air court in marvelous physical and uh, mental shape. And by that time, between protecting Harry and getting beat up by, you know, tough students and uh, lots of academic infighting, mm -hmm. uh, trying to build a program, uh, I was pretty beat up and. Uh, decided I, you know, I was going to, there were some other personal things which I don't care to even comment on. Uh, I mean, they were really nasty uh, on the part of Chamayev, uh, who I, you know, I respect, you know, for his uh, verbal abilities, but as a personality, I think he's a bastard. Uh, then, uh, <clears throat> so when I quit, I started doing my own photography. I had no... I had broken again. You see, when I committed myself to education like that, I never did any work for money. Hmm. Never did any work for money. I just devoted all my time. Harry, you know, and I went out and talked to high schools and colleges and mm -hmm. tried to camera clubs, Dearborn Camera Club. I'm sure if you look up their records, you'll find I spoke there in that period. And you didn't do any commercial jobs at all? No. Totally so that thing in life, then, about August of '49, of the the railroad crossing lights, it's like the first. Oh, that. Then that's not really a commercial assignment. That was just. No, a, that's modern art by a photographer, and that's a little later, I think, '50. Well, there's just one picture. '49. '49. August. Oh, really? I don't know. Remember. Well, I've got the slide of it. That's where I found it. Well, that's interesting. Uh, no, I'd begun. To, I was doing my work. But again, that was subordinate to the job I was trying to do. I really was conscientiously trying to build this program and devoted my energies to it and protected Harry from anything. Let him work. So all your contacts in the commercial field. And I was not functioning very well at the end there. I, you know, I think that was very clear. But then I, when I left, you see, I started to do more, just do my own work and also try to get some jobs. But I had no contacts, no nothing. And this was a new city for me. And it had been really since before the war that you'd really done a lot of Any commercial things. I had no contacts. It wasn't... One of the reasons I trade with Standard Photo Supply, and <clears throat> people have wondered why I'm so loyal to them, is that Julie Alone in 1950 allowed me to be in debt to them to the tune of about $5,200 for supplies, mainly supplies. And uh, he never pressed me. And I, well, today, in terms of $1950, you have to say it would be about $15,000 at least. Well, for somebody who didn't have a business, didn't have anything, all he had was a faith in me. Yeah, that's a lot of faith. That's a lot of faith for a commercial enterprise. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I then, uh, by 1950, I really had great emotional problems and I went into psychoanalysis. I had been going around, you know, trying to find out what was wrong with me physically. I did find out that I was very allergic to milk. And that may have been the reason I cracked up, because I never had, never drank coffee or tea until I was 17. Uh, you mean you drank only milk? Only milk. And whiskey, you know, or something like that. But uh, I, never, I never drank coffee at home, even. Huh. And very little tea. I, I loved, drank only milk. Anyway, my health after discovering the milk allergy began to improve, but by that time I think I had a lot of emotional problems that come, begun to come up. And uh, 
Then the year 50, I guess is the year, was that Black Mountain College? Summer 51. 51, 51. Well, I was already in analysis, and uh, Barbara and I, I, I was not making any money. I mean, I was in great financial trouble. And uh, I think her, her family looked sort of askance at that. She comes from a very... Oh, upper middle class doctor. Her father had died. He was a doctor, and her mother is really rather uh, very middle class. Sort of well to do. Well to do. Uh, her sister is much, much well, very nice uh, upper middle class. I adore her husband. You know, we visited. I liked him very much. And uh, then we went to Black Mountain College to continue that little saga. Uh, personal, my personal head where it was, uh, I fell in love with one of the dance teachers there by the name of Betty Jennerjohn, who I thought was a marvelous person, and uh, we used to see each other, and Barbara was there. And also, her husband was there too, wasn't he? No, he was away, and had been away in one of the wars, I think. So she was very lonely, and uh, Barbara and I had found certain kinds of differences by that time, or something. Mm -hmm. I was changing. Uh, we never argued very much, which may have been the problem. Mm. I don't remember having more than two arguments with Barbara yeah. in all the seven years we were married. It seems kind of like your nature now to argue with people almost in a sense, in a, in well, a friendly end of, <laughs> you know, anyway. Well, no, the experience kind of really mashed my, my ego at the end there. Mm. I mean, I had really given a great deal of love to Harry, and uh, when the time came for him to, uh, to uh, you know, stand up and be counted, he, he was nowhere to be seen. And that never changed my feelings, incidentally, towards the way I treated Harry. I mean, I think we're still friends, and, uh, you know, I've always visited him, and he's always come and visited me. I mean, he did keep coming in. And I've been friendly with Dee Knapp, his sister-in-law in New York. I used to go see Dee. I adore Eleanor. I mean, I think she is, you know, the perfect woman. Excepting in women's terms today, she's totally exploited. Hmm. She doesn't know it, doesn't. I mean, her life is in Harry. She is a, that's the way it is. Interesting, is that's the perfect woman? No, I'm trying to tell you she's the perfect woman in terms of the past. Yeah, yeah. She's not, Eleanor's always had a job, but if Harry wanted to move, she'd quit the job. And the money went to uh, give Harry freedom, not to build up Eleanor. Now, Eleanor didn't have any ambitions that I know of. Uh -huh. uh, you know, of any kind of thing. She lived her life through Harry, which is different than Irene, it's different than you. I mean, in no way you or Irene are ever going to spend your life taking care of somebody. <laughs> I think Jim McClain I mean, can shed that, some light on that. Not that you don't not, have human concerns. Sure. Okay, but I, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, and there were many times that Eleanor certainly was considering divorcing Harry. He was a great burden because of his drinking. And that is no, certainly no secret. It's just, you know, drop. Just like... You know, there are private things that really determine the course of events, but they don't come up, they're not talked about, and so on. They're more important than what people talk about. Really, probably in the end, what's untalked about is more important than what is talked about. Mm -hmm.
did your wife Barbara support your uh, career and your dedication to photography? Do you think she was supportive of you or understood? Barbara was a very nice person. Um, she never had a never had a job. She, you know, the Carson Perry Scott bag. Yes. With the little decorating, that's Barbara's, and she Is sold that, right? that to Carson Peary Scott. There must be, they must have printed by now a billion. They're great. She got, I think, two hundred, three hundred dollars for that design, and she was more on the shy side. Very elegant woman. Uh, when we finally, uh, you know, separated, it was very peaceful. Uh, it, uh, you know, there was we. It was an agreed divorce, and uh, nobody got any money. No, nothing changed hands. I retained the house that I bought. We had bought on uh, Mohawk. It just didn't work out, and there were several levels to why it didn't work out. But it wasn't acrimonious. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk since we're at this point a little bit about Black Mountain. Uh, apart from the uh, the other things that were going on there in terms of. Uh, being there and teaching because Harry was there. Well, I, this was a summer course. Right. Summer, I don't know if you even call it a course. Yeah, a course. No, 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 no. Was I was the only one that had a seminar. There were no workshops in America. There, well, I'm, I know it wasn't a workshop, but it was a type of a. It was a course. Okay. It was a summer session. That's right. Of a very unstructured program to begin yeah, with. Yeah, right. Uh, Hazel Larson was there. She was the instructor. She was a sort of heavy set, crippled gal who um, had made some pictures and got them in the Museum of Modern Arts in one show. And a uh, very nice person. And the situation around, uh, well, uh, Harry and Aaron were there for the whole summer. I was there for the month. And uh, they wanted, Harry and Aaron wanted me to come down to give some lectures. Because they were not prepared to give any lectures. They were prepared to teach you know, technique and discuss photo photographs. But they they liked what I said, you know, so um, I did. I went down there. Barbara and I went down there, and uh, Black Mountain was a goddamn mess. Uh, it was full of all kinds of cliques, people mad as hell at each other, and the definitive account, even though I haven't read it, is Martin Duberman. Yeah, I've read it. And uh, the the predominant, the most powerful. Uh, group clique was around, centered around Charles Olson, you know, the poet. And every night or every other night there was a reading, and there were a great number of gay people there that hung around. Uh, how do I know? I don't know. But it seemed that way to us who were not gay. Mm -hmm. uh, and the people like Rauschenberg, I don't know, maybe they were asexual. But they certainly were rather uh, cliquish, uh, rather mean to other people. There was another group that sort of centered around dance. A uh, wonderful gal was teaching there that summer, beautiful, wonderful dancer, and you know of my interest in the dance, uh, by the name of Katie Litz, who we were friendly. And then there was Betty Jenner, John, who I just sort of fell in love with, I guess. And she was very lonely. And uh, I mean, we would see each other, never slept with her, even though I'm sure Barbara thought I did. Uh, 
she had, had something that I enjoyed at that point. Uh, the teaching, I gave some lecture and uh, was rather rudely treated by a number of them. A number of students? Yeah. Well, of the Charles Olson type people, that group. You mean they sort of looked down on what you had to say? Yeah. Uh, some of the people liked it. See, they were all split. That was disintegrating yeah, this was fast one, as... One of the many times it almost folded was right around that summer. And yeah, I that's right. It was only Bucky Fuller's intervention that got the session, the summer session going, either the year before or but that Bucky year. Bucky Fuller, he was a friend, I think, of, of Hazel, somewhere along the line there. I can't remember all of that. Uh, and Emerson... Uh, Wolfer had been there the year before, I think. He wasn't there that summer? No. He'd been there during the school year. Maybe so. Uh, ben Chan, who was my friend and who I saw a great deal of, was there, and Robert Motherwell was there, the other half. And I spent a lot of time with Motherwell, and I think he was on his third wife or something there, I can't remember. Uh, it was, it was, uh, and interesting enough, you see, Harry went through all this, no understanding really of anything was going on. He just continued making his pictures, sort of. That picture I have upstairs there of Eleanor in the window mm -hmm. against all the uh, bushes. Mm -hmm. That's Black Mountain. That's one of Harry's pictures Harry gave me in Black Mountain. It's a you know, close-up of a bush and a double exposure. Oh yeah, you commented when we were looking at it with a recorder the other day. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So, what I had, what I had lecture on there, as I recall, one of the lectures, uh, had to do with the, you know, photography and science. How the whole uh, new vision had been opened up by photography in combination with microscopes and uh, mm -hmm. telescopes and uh, uh, new films and so on. That was one of, one of the lectures. Uh, so it was a mixed thing. I was. A lot of it was very pleasant. There were some wonderful people there. There were some very... I used to go to these poetry readings. I liked poetry, and I listened to uh, Olson, but I was rather put off, because they, you know, they were making a god out of them, and I'd, I have no gods. I mean, that's been one of my problems. I'd be you know, much better off if I had some... You know, thought Stieglitz was God, or Steichen was God, or something. I never had that kind of... Maholi was not God. I tried to... I mean, looking back at it now, I've always tried to, uh, you know, take what they had to give, but not deify them. And Olson certainly was being deified by, I think, some very weak people. Hmm. What were the students he, like? Uh, they thought, you know, he was probably the equivalent of Ezra Pound, and I don't think so. I was going to ask, what were the, what were the students like? I mean... They were a mixed bag. They were all sort of... To be in a place, you see, like Black Mountain College in particular, which is in a great state of, of turmoil and mess, mm -hmm. you had to either be slightly sick in the head or escaping something. You know, it was an early commune type thing, but it was in total disarray. So uh, there was a wide variety of students. Some were very brilliant, some who were emotionally disturbed, some who, you know, had good intellectual reasons for getting out of the normal uh, path of education. So it was an interesting mess. Even the, the meals were all screwed up. 
all the time. Sometimes there weren't any meals. You know, it was like a summer camp that was run by an anarchist. <laughs> That's a great point. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, well there's a there's one other event that I that is we're a little out of place chronologically here, but right around this time in, in the fall of fifty there's this Aspen photo conference, which you're not a, a participant in. Right. Is there a reason why you're not? I mean for, Berko was one of the people helping organize this. Yeah. And all these other Beaumont was in on it. And yeah. I just is there any reason for that, especially or were you not interested or do you recall? Uh, now that you bring, uh, remind me of it, I remember it. Uh, I mean, Fred Sommer was in it for Lord's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Uh, Bernice was in it. Uh, Vanderbilt went out to it. Yeah. I guess Steichen had helped organize it and then pulled out for right. some reason. Uh, I was not in very good shape at that particular period, and I was avoiding a lot of things. Uh, I can truly say I think I could have gone out there if I wanted to, because I knew Pepke, and Pepke was really Pepke's baby, right. and Pussy was a good friend of mine, and Berko was, you know, the factotum that was sort of running it is what it amounted to. Uh, and my relations with uh, uh, Berko were fine, I mean, we've always been friendly. I I did not want to get involved in something. You had other things on your mind at that yeah. point. Yeah. Okay. Well, what this brings us to, well, it brings us to one other question. Right at the end of this period also, somewhere in here, um, you... You can see how my life all along has been very busy and very complicated. Oh yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Believe me, I can see that. You, you go around lecturing for this organization that's like the Midwestern version branch of the American Association of Colleges and Universities. Yeah, like the Midwest Art Conference, I think that was called. Was it? I, it's, that's pretty close. Mm -hmm. Maybe I will track it down somewhere here. I've seen, I've seen some references in print to it. I don't have a note of it right with me. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah, they, uh, they made it, they wanted somebody. Somebody had, I had lectured at one of their conferences or something given my a lecture on color and light. Mm -hmm. And they asked me if I would be interested in going around to some colleges and lecturing uh, at a f set fee basis, plus expenses. And I said, okay, because I, I really needed the money and I also wanted to get out, you know, and wander around. Mm -hmm. And so I went to uh, St. Mary's College in Minnesota, I guess. Yeah, I think. Uh, I've seen his name, Laredo Taft. That's, okay, something, that's, something, else. that's something else. Yeah, okay. that's something else. Okay. Uh, no, I, I went to Carleton College, and I remember it was so goddamn cold and you froze to death. Uh, I went to a, a Catholic men's college. See, there were three kinds of things, Catholic women's schools, Catholic men's school, schools, uh, public, public universities. I spoke at uh, the University of Minnesota, I believe. And then I came down and I spoke down in Indiana, some small schools. And uh, they paid me something like $100 per place, plus whatever the transportation, and that was mainly train. Uh, 
And I think, I don't know, I was gone two or three weeks. Because I could just do about two, I think, maybe three in a week. And I remember there were six or eight colleges I had to go. So I showed my slides, and then I would also do some demonstrations or work, like up at this Catholic women's school in, uh, in uh, well, this one is, I know, west of, of Minneapolis. There is a St. Mary's up there. Yeah. There is a St. Mary's up there. I think it's Manana, uh, Minnesota. That's, that's, that's kind of right. right. Yeah, that's it right. is right. That sounds kind of right. Uh, anyway, this is part two of uh, Seventh Day. Um, I gave the lecture to the nuns and the girls, and then uh, they had a dark room there, and so uh, I asked them if they would like to make some photographs, and they said they would, and so this was just the faculty, not the students. So I went in the dark room, and I showed them how this process work. And somebody pinched you? No, no. It <laughs> was very marvelous. They, uh, they said, oh, sister so-and-so, isn't that wonderful? Or, oh, sister so-and-so, isn't that exciting? And they were all so sweet and darling to each other and to me. It was like it confirmed what I had discovered on this trip about bodily comforts and being sustained. I liked it, what happened at the Catholic women's schools and also at the men's school. And I hated what happened at the Protestant schools because at the Catholic, the nuns would come as I was going to bed and want to give me a cup of hot tea or a sweet roll or, you know, ice cream or something and practically bodily put me to sleep. And I liked that. The beds were comfortable at the Protestant schools. Or were these public schools? No, no, these were private Catholic institutions. I mean, the, the other ones you're referring to as Protestant. No, they were Protestant schools. Okay. Or had been Protestant derived. The food was terrible. At the Catholic places, their food was delicious. The Protestant schools, the beds were hard. There was no sensory environment that inspired me. And the people were much colder. They were not treating, uh, they were not as careful to, uh, they were not as good hosts, let's put it that way. There was nothing wrong with them, but they, the Catholic nuns were just marvelous. So that was kind of a revelation. I'd never had this experience. See, going from one place to another gives you a chance to see the differences mm -hmm. in the cultures very easily. You wouldn't notice this if you did it over a year, for instance. Mm -hmm. But being just very compressed, it became very obvious. Mm -hmm. Well, that was kind of intriguing. And all the time, I, at every place I was, I photographed. And my picture of the uh, the red door and the green wall was taken on that trip. Yeah, that's taken Winona. Is it? It's marked Winona, yeah. Well, I just filed that slide and it's set yeah, yeah. yesterday. So that sort of confirms. So I made a lot of, you know, a lot of color pictures on this trip, mm -hmm. which I then used later on. or. Like, I don't know, I just photographed like any other then. Uh, making, you know, having, pr I enjoyed this because there was no purpose to my photographs except the, mm -hmm. making them. Yeah, and this is, this is published in Life later, some of these. Yes.